Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. I am very pleased to uh, welcome back to our show the founder and president of Horse Racing Wrongs, Patrick Batuello. Uh, we've been following his work for a long time. We have spoken at least once before, and we really admire what uh, he and his group are doing uh, to protect uh, horses. And uh, Patrick, welcome. Thank you so much for having me again, Peter. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, why don't you just start for the uninitiated or the new to your universe to what is horse racing wrongs? And if you want, who are you? And uh, give us right. an overview, please. Yeah, so I was writing an animal rights blog for the Albany Times Union back in 2012, 2013. I started researching horse racing and two things jumped out. First, there was a real dearth of information out there. No one knew how many horses were dying at American tracks, let alone the circumstances and the, all the other attendant cruelties involved in, in, in the industry. And second, there were no groups, be they big or small, focused on this issue. Uh, Gray 2K had Greyhound Racing covered. There were, of course, uh, groups that uh, focused squarely on Ringland, uh, Ringland Brothers and animal testing, certainly factory farming, fur, etc. But no one was representing racehorses. So I decided to fill that void in the animal rights community and founded Horse Racing Wrongs. And I don't have a horse background. I didn't know much about horse racing beyond being a sports fan growing up. And I was aware of Secretariat and remember affirmed in Seattle slew going for the Triple Crown. It was sold to me as another sport. And so, of course, I watched those big races. So I really learned as I went and totally immersed myself on the topic. And uh, 10 years later, here we are. We're the, uh, the only group that is focused on this issue uh, as a nonprofit. But uh, e even more important, we have accumulated unprecedented data on the horse racing industry. So I'm a fact-based person, Peter, so I, I I need evidence, especially going up against this behemoth, the horse racing industry. So the first thing we started doing was filing FOIA requests with state racing commissions around the country, asking for details on deaths at their tracks. And we are currently approaching the 10,000 mark since 2014, 10,000 confirmed deaths. That's names, dates, locations, and details. Uh, and we estimate actually that the total is over 2,000 annually. So over 2,000 horses are dying at US tracks every year. That's about six every single day. Yeah. So the data that you're accumulating, just having it is valuable for the world community. I mean, just knowing what we have. So congratulations and thank you for doing that. Sure. How has this data been used? How are people uh, utilizing this vast resource now? Well, certainly as we've gone along here, the animal rights community has become increasingly engaged on this to the point where we are sponsoring protests at uh, almost 25 or in almost 25 states. But even more important, I think, is that the media reaches out to us when they're looking for information on horse racing because we are the definitive source. So, for instance, in 2019, when Santa Anita had what was called a spike or a spate in deaths, uh, we, we filled a lot of media requests. And we were on HBO and CNN and ESPN. The Washington Post reached out to us for an op-ed. We had very unique data. We had unique messaging. We were the only group really saying this has got to end. No no more reform talk. Horse racing is is but base animal cruelty and, and it must end. 
And and most recently, what happened at Churchill Downs in April and May, it it was to, to define the term properly, a cluster. So I would say that 12 kills in a 31-day period is unusual. But as I was telling the media, it's a cluster, but the killing itself is not unusual. Over the past five years, the past five full calendar years, Churchill Downs has, has 126 deaths on its ledger. It's an average of 25 dead annually. So Again, these things will come and go in waves. For us, though, for our purposes, this was welcome attention. Finally, the industry was being exposed on a, on a grand scale. This actually surpassed the media scrutiny from 2019. I, this was uh, nothing that I had ever seen before. And, and I would guess, even though we've only been around for 10 years, that the racing industry has never faced this kind of scrutiny. And it's a 150-year-plus history. Uh, national media outlets covering it almost every day. Uh, not all of the uh, the coverage was was good as far as we were concerned. There was a lot of talk about drugs and reform and, and that kind of uh, that kind of talk. But uh, we were getting our fair share. And Again, we were um, MSNBC reached out for an op-ed, the Baltimore Sun. I was on again CNN uh, two different times, ESPN. Uh, so we were getting a lot of attention and and exposing the industry for for what it is. So uh, welcome in that in that respect. Uh, unfortunately, horses had to die for us to get that kind of attention. So for those who don't follow this or haven't thought about mm -hmm. it, how do the horses die? Why do they die? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, they die in a variety of ways. Most people think it's it's usually just a uh, a leg fracture of one kind or another. And although that probably is the majority of deaths, uh, they they die in other in other gruesome ways. They die of cardiovascular collapse. Their hearts simply fail. These animals are mostly still in puberty and adolescence, and their hearts are giving out. They die of pulmonary hemorrhage, bleeding out from the lungs. They die of blunt force head trauma from collisions with other horses or the track itself, broken necks, severed spines, ruptured ligaments, and of course, those shattered legs. Sometimes the legs are shattered so severely that the limb remains attached to the rest of the body by skin or tendons only. And and I, and I would encourage, Peter, your listeners to, to go to our website, obviously, to, to try to learn more about horse racing. But if there's one thing that I would love for them to read. It's a category called How They Die. If they just click on How They Die, and it just gives you an idea of the different ways that these animals are dying. And, and all the information that we present, again, comes directly from the state racing commissions, right? It's a uh, it, it's it's horrific to read through the details, yeah. but it's necessary. People need to know it's not just a simple break and a quick shot and the suffering is over. Often these horses are, are, are writhing on the track and um, imagine uh, their spinal cords are being compressed or outright severed or they're bleeding out from their lungs. It's, 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 it's horrific. And they also die, and this is something that we have um, uh, been unapologetic for from the beginning, talking about the, the stall death. So the industry would like us to just talk about what happens on the track, mostly during races, to a lesser extent in training in training hours, uh, but these horses are also dying back in their stalls. And remember, they are still very much active. They're in between races, and most of them, again, in adolescence, they die of things like colic, which is an, uh, an excruciating uh, abdominal affliction, uh, laminitis, a, a painful condition of the feet. They die of respiratory infection, neurological disorder, um, parasitic infestation. Sometimes the 
FOIA document will simply read, quote, found dead in the morning, unquote. Again, most of these are two, three, four-year-old horses. And we I always use this historical analogy because I'm a history buff. The Civil War, uh, many people are aware of that 650,000 dead soldiers in the Civil War, the American Civil War, uh, by far the worst uh, carnage in any uh, war in American history. But what most people don't know is that two-thirds of those soldiers died of disease back in the camp. Yet, have you ever heard in a story and tried to draw a distinction between a soldier who died of dysentery and a soldier who died of a gunshot wound on the battlefield? Of course not. And the same thing applies here with the racing industry. So while they, they would like to wash their hands of these stall deaths, they can't. They are, uh, again, in servitude to the industry. So any any death in racing is by racing, simply put. And also, even though horses do colic and develop laminitis everywhere horses are kept, they are at a higher risk for those conditions in at the racetrack. So, again, uh, when you combine these, the, the racing deaths, the training deaths and the stall deaths, we're talking over 2,000 annually in the United States. That's about six dead horses every single day. And that doesn't even begin to cover slaughter, um, which we believe that the majority, the majority of spent or simply no longer wanted racehorses have their lives brutally and violently ended at the abattoir. Some, well, multiple thousands annually. The numbers have come down in recent years because there's less breeding and there's been a, um, a backlash against American horse meat in uh, in Europe because of the drugs in the system. Um, but we're still talking multiple thousands annually. So put together, I use the term carnage when referring to the American horse racing industry, multiple thousands of horses sacrificed every year. And for what? For nothing more than $2 bets and frivolous entertainment. And, and demographically, Peter, this industry is in really bad shape. Uh, they don't draw the younger generations. The, the reason for that is twofold. There is more competition for the gambling dollar. So while the racing industry had a virtual monopoly on legal gambling in this country for decades, now they can't compete with lotteries, full-service casinos, and mobile sports betting, even, even more uh, a bigger player on the stage. And so what they do is they go to state legislatures and they say, look, if you don't help us here, if you don't give us help, uh, a leg up, you are going to be responsible for putting so many people out of work. And of course, they pull these jobs numbers out of thin air. But politicians being politicians, it was an easy vote 15, 20 years ago to vote these subsidies in. And so now just using New York as an example, we have 11 tracks in New York. At nine of the 11, there are what are called racinos, which is a combination racetrack casino. And a portion of the revenue from the slot machines is being used to prop up the racing operation to the tune of $230 million every year in, in New York alone. $230 million to prop up horse racing. Taxpayer money, that's money that should be going back to the state for things like education primarily. So I say that we are cheating school children out of almost a billion dollars every four years just in New York to prop up this archaic, cruel, deadly horse racing industry. That's part of the issue that we are focusing more and more on going forward because we can win the hearts and minds, and I think that we have largely. But un until those laws are reversed, the racing people, the exploiters are going to be laughing all the way to the bank. So we need to really get a, a, a firm handle on the subsidies. We we were part of a coalition that introduced legislation to reverse that here in New York. Um, it's, it's an ongoing process. And uh, 
Pennsylvania, I do believe, uh, uh, you know, we're making progress there too. So once we get one state to reverse these subsidies, I, I think that uh, others will will follow in short order. We're speaking with Patrick Batuello. You've just received a blast of direct information and uh, I hope you're taking that in. We'll continue our discussion on animals today after the break. For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. We're speaking with Patrick Batuello from Horse Racing Wrongs. Oh, Patrick, what's the website, by the way? I don't want to forget. It's uh, horseracingwrongs.org. Okay. And uh, we'll remind people at, at the end of this segment, why can't this be reformed? Why can't we just make it better and safer and happier for everybody? Sure. So a certain level of killing is built into the system, Peter. Um, and, and, and it's primarily the way they're bred. This is about speed. They're bred for speed. So we get thousand pound animals with massive torsos, spindly legs, and fragile ankles. But in addition, uh, and probably most important, a horse does not fully mature till the age of six. Racehorses are thrust into intensive training in 18 months and raced at two, long before their bodies are, are mature. Bones not done growing, plates not done fusing. So we see time and again in the necropsy reports, four, three, even two-year-old horses adolescents, pubescents, dying with chronic conditions like osteoarthritis and degenerative joint disease. Clear evidence of the incessant pounding those unformed bodies are forced to absorb. That's the primary reason that they die in such large numbers. And why that can't be, why that won't change is because it would be cost prohibitive to wait for a horse to be five or six to begin the racing or training and racing process is never going to happen. So that's why we talk about the inevitability of death at the track. And, and that's where the drugs come into play. They have to try to control uh, that inflammation and that pain. Uh, but the primary reason is the way these animals are bred and when they're first put to work. So that's why that's, uh, we'll always, we will always have dead horses at the track always mm -hmm. uh, unquestionably. But in addition, to talk about reform, what the reformers never talk about when they're discussing this topic is the unremitting intensive solitary confinement. These animals are kept in tiny 12 by 12 stalls alone for over 23 hours a day. It's a cruelty, all the worse because these are naturally social herd animals. And, and that's something that will never change, could never change. First off, we have sometimes a thousand plus horses at these tracks at one time. There's not enough land to give them free range. But in addition, these are assets. They're never going to allow these horses to, to be uh, free in, a, in an open pasture with uh, their own kind and just to be a horse, never going to happen. That's the worst of the cruelties is that confinement and that isolation. And of course, uh, you know, you have the whipping and the drugging and the doping and uh, et cetera, but that can't be reformed because it would be cost prohibitive and also they have to protect their investments. So that's why when we talk about the inherent cruelty and the inevitable deadliness of horse racing. So again, 
It, it's cruel from the beginning. It's cruel from the start. It's no different from dog racing. Dog racing in this country is all but dead. There are two tracks left in the entire country, both in West Virginia, and it's prohibited on moral grounds in 42 states. So as a society, we have rejected dog racing. It is cruel. It's inhumane unethical, whatever term you want to use. And yet we continue to give horse racing cover under the banner of sport. So this is what we need more and more people to to acknowledge that this is no different and that horse racing has to be next. Patrick, a lot of uh, folks, uh, particularly young people, they see horses, they're drawn to the beauty of horses. What can interested people really do to help change the culture or, or to apply pressure or increase everyone's awareness of what's going on? Sure. It's, it's simple activism, Peter. It's engagement. Um, that could be uh, standing outside of a track with a sign. On our website, you will see where we are sponsoring protests. If you if the track near you doesn't have one, then please reach out to us. We have all the materials. We will give you all the training and the guidance to conduct a, a protest, an effective protest. So I think that that's the most important thing we activists can do, because if you think about it, every every social justice movement in our nation's history began in the streets. We have to show the masses that there's something wrong here. Our outrage has to show. But it could also take the form of just writing a letter to the editor of your local newspaper or calling into a radio show or just talking to friends and coworkers about horse racing because most people don't think about it all that much. Maybe during Triple Crown season when the Kentucky Derby is being held. But after that, it's largely forgotten. So it's, 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 it's real important that we just engage as activists. Um, and whatever your comfort level is, maybe you're not comfortable going to a protest, but find another way to engage, to educate and bring awareness to the issue. That's what we're asking people to do. And, and we have all the, uh, the help that you could ever ask for. Uh, again, just reach out to us. We have a contact form. We will call you. We'll, you know, we'll guide you through the whole process. We, we have a, um, a great writers group that Nicole, our executive director, has formed. It's, they're wonderful. 30 plus people that whenever we need a, a, an action performed, as she puts them in, in, in into use, and and it's just uh, it's really really effective. Um, so again, there's there's many many different ways to to engage on this, and we we need to speak for these these terribly abused suffering animals. And and Nicole has this great uh, phrase. She says, for over 150 years, these horses suffered in silence and died in anonymity. No longer, no longer, because you know we're out there fighting the fight every day. Patrick, is this an international issue? Do you have uh, colleagues around the world? We do. We have uh, strong allies in uh, Australia, New Zealand, the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. We have uh, Animal Aid in the UK. We work hand in hand with with both of those groups. We we have allies in Italy. Um, so yeah, this is uh, again, it's it's something that flew under the radar for a very long time. This issue, and I get it. There are bigger issues in animal rights, especially factory farming and animal testing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the racehorses also don't deserve a voice. And that's why we're you know you can do more than one thing at a time right and you know we're vegan we're, we're abolitionist uh philosophically we don't believe we should be using animals for for any purpose um and we we always uh, espouse that message um but at the same time uh we've, we're focused on horse racing because they need us they need our voice next steps for interested listeners they go to the website i presume yeah, go to horseracingwrongs.org and on the homepage, there'll be a, a tab that says uh, get involved and uh, various ways that you, you can, you can help with this cause. Um, 
Obviously, we're a nonprofit, a 501c3, so we're always looking for donations. We, we, we have mobile billboards, which is, we found, the most effective way for us to get the messaging out for eight hours in front of the tracks at all the big races, all three Triple Crown races, Breeders' Cup, Saratoga, New Jersey. Um, our, these mobile billboards are really, really powerful. We have video on there with simple messaging. Horse racing is animal cruelty. Horse racing is animal killing. So, uh, of course, we need money for that. And so... So uh, it, it could be as simple as just making a donation, big or small. We, um, we're, we're, you know, that's what we're here for, just to to, uh, to to further further the cause. We have a little bit of experience, just to to wrap up here, of using the video and mobile billboards. Do you see the patrons looking at them and and mm. really reacting to them? Yeah, you know, we had a static image for the first few years, Peter, and uh, we just kind of discovered the video last last summer at Saratoga. Uh, Saratoga is uh, is in a residential area, so it's um and it's on a busy four way intersection. Uh, so the trucks when they're stopped at the light and people are waiting to cross the street to get into the track, they can't help but see those images. It's extremely powerful, extremely powerful. Patrick Batuello, Horse Racing Wrongs, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Okay, more with animals today after this break. Today we're going to talk about the incredible saga of a huge factory farm called Circle Four Farms, the animal activists who broke into it and obtained unbelievable video, and the legal fallout that followed. You probably know that we delve into legal questions not that infrequently on animals today. And this sequence of events is especially interesting because it raises the issue of whether breaking the law is acceptable or legitimate or even desirable or heroic in the service of animal advocacy and protection. Circle Four Farms is a huge hog-producing operation in Milford, Utah. It consists of 300 barns stretching over 20 miles, undercover video by the group Direct Action Everywhere, and which came to be referred to as Operation Death Star, was obtained in December 2017. This video was extraordinary because it was filmed in 360-degree virtual reality style to capture all the horrible details and provide a seriously impactful document. It showed rows and rows of mother pigs crammed in too tightly, and on the floor below those rows of pigs are piglets, some alive, some deceased, and covered in feces. When those five activists broke into Circle Four Farms in December 2017, they intended to merely expose the poor conditions in which Smithfield Foods, the largest pork producer in the world, treated their pigs at Circle Four Farms, which processes about one million pigs per year. They did not expect, but they encountered one piglet struggling with a nasty infection on her foot and another piglet with its face covered in lesions unable to feed. And when they saw these two piglets, they knew they had to rescue them. You can watch the short film called Operation Death Star on YouTube. It's as real as can be. And you can watch two of the activists, Wayne Song and Paul Darwin Picklesheimer, in the factory and rescuing these piglets. So there are two notable facts here. Wayne and Paul rescued two piglets that would have otherwise been disposed of by Smithfield Foods, the owners of the pigs, and they also stole them. The three other activists that infiltrated Circle Four Farms took plea deals, but Wayne and Paul did not. 
They faced trial in October 2020 in Washington County, Utah, charged with two three-degree felony counts of burglary and a Class B misdemeanor count of theft. This incident raises the question, when is the law worth breaking on behalf of animals? And this question is not a new one. A major point of contention for activists converges at universities and research labs that test on animals. In 2004, Animal Liberation Front activists broke into a University of Iowa to free hundreds of animals from the psych labs. In the process, they smashed equipment and spray-painted walls, causing $400,000 in damage. Incidents like this have gotten more personal in recent years. Rather than targeting universities or companies, protesters have turned their gazes on the individuals conducting the experiments. A study titled The Threat of Extremism to Medical Research analyzed 220 illegal incidents reported between 1990 and 2012. From 1990 to 1999, 61% of the incidents reported involved universities, while only 9% targeted individuals. Then between 2000 and 2012, that number drastically changed. Only 13% of incidents in this time period targeted universities, and incidents that targeted individuals rose to 46%. And here are a few examples. In 2006, UCLA professors were pressured by late-night mask protesters who banged on their doors and threw firecrackers at their houses. They would yell things like, we know where you sleep, send threatening emails, and make threatening phone calls. The intimidation tactics escalated to leaving three firebombs at researchers' front doors. One out of three actually went off, charring a home. In addition, one professor's home was flooded when a protester turned on a garden hose and shoved it through a broken window. In 2008, a website leaked the names, email addresses, home addresses, phone numbers, and photos of researchers working at UC Berkeley Labs. The site encouraged people to put pressure on the individuals listed to end their animal testing research, but did not encourage anyone to pursue illegal activity in the process. But even so, a group of protesters gathered at the home of a UC Berkeley toxicology professor, vandalizing, harassing, and shattering one of their windows. In 2009, activists set fire to the car of a UCLA neuroscientist who worked on rats and monkeys. The general opinion within the animal advocacy field is mixed when it comes to protesting methods. Jerry Vlasic, spokesman for the Animal Liberation Front press office, said he doesn't encourage anyone to commit murder, but... Listen to this, quote, if you had hurt someone or intimidate them or kill them, it would be morally justifiable. If you're interested in learning more about Animal Liberation Front, particularly the early days, I interviewed its founder, Ronnie Lee, in 2017. One big takeaway from my talk with Ronnie is his evolution as an activist as he got older. Anyway, that's the November 18, 2017 show on AnimalsTodayRadio.com. In contrast to Vlasic's comments, former Humane Society of the United States Chairman Eric Bernthal said back in 2014 that the Humane Society does not condone terror and destruction of property, but that perhaps researchers should use fewer animals in research and not assemble crisis communications teams. Many might align with Bernthal's words in that while protesting should not lead to physical harm against property or people, for that matter, the researchers on the receiving end should take a moment to consider why there's such heated protest taking place against them and why people are so upset on behalf of animals when research unnecessarily uses animals to test upon. 
When animals are abused and mistreated, we should feel enraged. We should feel angry. But we should figure out how to get our message across and take action in a way that does not bring physical harm or damage to anyone. So those are the two ends of the spectrum. Now to the trial. On October 8, 2022, the jury in Utah deciding Wayne Song and Paul Picklesheimer's fate asked why Wayne and Paul had to steal, quote, property from Smithfield Foods. They asked this question because Wayne told them to in his closing remarks at his trial. By the way, he represented himself. Wayne writes in his New York Times op-ed, quote, I told the jurors that a not guilty verdict would encourage corporations to treat animals under their care with more compassion and make governments more open to animal cruelty complaints. However, jurors still had to grapple with the legal facts of the case. Technically, Wayne and Paul broke into the facilities on Circle 4 Farms and stole from Smithfield's Foods. They were being faced with burglary and theft charges of a theft that the accused posted footage of. It shouldn't have even been a debate. Wayne and Paul obviously stole from Smithfield Foods, and they posted the evidence online for everyone to see. And by the way, after the footage release in the search of the two piglets, the FBI raided sanctuaries and even sliced off part of a pig's ear in an effort to conduct a DNA match. And it's important to note, of course, that the piglet's worth to Smithfield Foods was about $42.50 each, according to the testimony of a state official. The prosecutor's reasoning that he presented the jury with was as follows. If you find a dented can in a grocery store, its damaged status does not mean you can, quote, rescue it and take it out of the store without pain. Obviously a Stanford Law graduate, but I digress. Wayne Swan commenting in his op-ed wrote, quote, The reality is every year we treat tens of billions of animals no better than dented cans, end quote. Justin Marceau, a law professor at the University of Denver and the author of Beyond Cages, Animal, Law, and Criminal Punishment, offers a lot of commentary on this case. He stated, Prosecutors would have you believe this case is about burglary, but in reality, it's a case about whether people can rescue animals in dire conditions that are now commonplace in our food system. I can't think of a more significant animal law case in recent history, he says. At the outset of the case, the jurors felt set on their opinions that Paul and Wayne committed a crime. They stole. It was unlawful. And they should be punished. And yet, after eight hours of deliberations, the jury found for acquittal. They realized two important things. One, Wayne and Paul lacked the intent to steal. Their intent was to expose the living conditions of the pigs on Smithfield Foods property and to only rescue an animal if they had to. And two, the piglets clearly do not have significant value to Smithfield. Therefore, they cannot be the objects of a theft. Acquitting the two defendants was entirely unexpected, since not only did Wayne and Paul publish evidence of their theft, but because the jury comes from a rural part of Utah whose economy relies heavily on the agricultural sector and the business of companies like Smithfield Foods. It's as if the jury was saying, this is one rare instance where breaking the law on behalf of animals was not only necessary, but accepted and forgiven. So to take a step back when it comes to protecting or rescuing animals and the possibility or certainty of breaking the law, well, first of all, it's good to know what the laws are, but I would say that each person needs to decide for themselves what their values are 
and what they're willing to do. On the tame side of the spectrum, maybe it's just a little bit of protesting or petty vandalism, or maybe minor theft that doesn't hurt any property or individuals, or even more serious might be causing significant vandalism that would harm the company or the lab in terms of their profits or reputation. Beyond that, and you know I'm not endorsing this, might be threatening actual harm against an individual or truly physically harming a person. Now, as far as the philosophy here at Animals Today We feel that, in general, the most effective way to achieve improved animal welfare and protecting animals is through nonviolent persuasion and legal legislative means. We think these are the most effective ways to achieve long-term lasting change. But I will tell you personally, I have, in the heat of the moment, conducted acts of vandalism, including breaking into hawk cars to rescue imperiled dogs and trespassing to save abused and neglected dogs from private property when legal and safer ways failed. And uh, I just better leave it at that. So in certain respects, I have a lot of admiration for Wayne and Paul from Direct Action Everywhere. What they did was heroic. They held fast to their beliefs and took action to live out those beliefs, despite the very real personal risk that came with taking and rescuing those piglets. And clearly, the jury must agree with that statement on some level. And it's refreshing to see humanity win rather than corporate abuse of animals in this case. We'll be right back. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home where it's cool and comfortable. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interest of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. Leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re-sewn. The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. 
These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. Well, September is Save the Koala Month. You know what that means, Peter, right? It's Save the Koala Month. Pop quiz. Oh, yes. Did you have any classes where your teachers would spring a pop quiz on you? Oh, my goodness. In Spanish class, in like in eighth grade, it was just a nightmare. That and you know what? Wait, wait. They yeah. would say, okay, does anyone have any questions? Okay, no questions. Okay, pop quiz. You must all know the material, right? I hate when they did that. Were you prepared? It was just terror. It was just not fair. That, that sick feeling in your stomach. Uh, I had a math teacher that would give us a pop quiz once a week, but we wouldn't know which day of the week it would be, so we would just always have to be prepared. That's terrible. That's what gives you ulcers. <laughs> okay, so koalas. Okay. True or false? Koala bears are a type of bear. Oh, that's a funny question. I don't think they're bears. That's correct. It is false. They are not bears, and they are not even related to bears. They get their name koala bear because they sort of look like teddy bears. Mm-hmm. True or false, koalas are marsupial mammals. That's true. Yes, that is true. Marsupial meaning they carry their babies in pouches like kangaroos and opossums. A newborn koala baby is called what? A joey. Very good. Yes. This little joey is less than an inch in length, lives in the mother's pouch, for about six months while its eyes, legs, and fur develop. And then he or she makes its way out of the pouch onto his or her mother's back and just rides on mom's back as Joey continues to be nursed by mother with her milk. And then after about a year, she or he is pretty much fully weaned and is off on its own. Fully grown koalas weigh about 20 pounds. Peter, koalas have litters of babies like dogs and cats. True or false? I'm going to say, let's see, I'm going to say yes, more than one. False. Ah. One baby at a time. Mm. Koalas live in packs. True or no, false? No, no. I'm going to say no. False. They prefer to live alone. That's right. Koalas spend most of their lives in trees. The only food koalas eat are yeah. eucalyptus leaves, fruit and nuts, insects and rodents. Oh, I believe those eucalyptus. Eucalyptus, is that? Am I saying that right? Eucalyptus leaves. That's correct. The only food koalas eat, which happens to be poisonous to most animals, are eucalyptus leaves. Koalas have certain bacteria in their stomachs to help detoxify the chemical toxins in the leaves and helps with the digestion process. They eat about a pound of leaves per day. There are different varieties of eucalyptus leaves in the wild, and each koala acquires a taste for a specific variety by adulthood. 
And koalas don't need to drink much water. They obtain most of their water from the leaves. So they spend most of their lives in trees and they need lots of trees and lots of space to keep them happy and healthy. Other than in zoos, koalas are only found where? I'm going to say Australia. Correct. The estimated lifespan of a koala in the wild is about 13 to 18 years, but their lifespan is beginning to decline because their habitat is disappearing. As of 2015, the Australian Koala Foundation estimates that there are less than 80,000 koalas left, with the possibility of that number being as low as 43,000. Koalas are not officially classified as endangered, but the Australian koala population has dropped by 90 percent in less than a decade so they are definitely threatened their population is shrinking due to the destruction of their natural habitat i read 80 percent of their habitat has been destroyed so we're just cutting down all their eucalyptus trees Mm. very sad yes i've heard this story before you know habitat loss yes many times yeah okay so What's my score on oh, this pop quiz? You got 50% right. What would that be in, in a math class? Like a C minus? In most colleges, that would be uh, A minus. 50% equals A minus these days. Right. Well, you certainly weren't prepared. Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus. What's the plural of eucalyptus? Eucalypti? Eucalyptuses? Mm. 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 What do you have there, Peter? Lori, I have a little study from the Pew Research Center that has to do with the views of various groups of people about how they feel about animals and scientific research. Very interesting topic to our listeners. Yes. Overall, among U.S. adults, 52% oppose the use of animals in scientific research and 47% favor it. Wow, I'm surprised that about half of the adult population is in favor of experimentation with animals. I don't know if I'm surprised by that or not, but I'll tell you there is also a wide gender gap. Among men, 58% approve, and among women, Overall, 36% approve. Right, because we're more sensitive and compassionate and smarter. They also split it out among those with various degrees of science knowledge. They've got this little test. And uh, among those with high scientific knowledge, 63% approve. Wow. Among those with medium scientific knowledge, 44% approve. And among those with low scientific knowledge, 37% approve. There you go. That doesn't make sense. Well, that's the survey results for now. Well, that doesn't make sense to me because scientifically knowledgeable people ought to know the limitations of animal research and how it's not applicable in many cases to humans. Oh, and I've got one more element of this in case you were wondering if there's a partisan difference in the survey results. And the answer is no. Whether you're Republican or Independent or Democrat, the results stay about the same. Interesting. Yep. Well, thanks for that, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.